Greetings and welcome to another episode of Reformation Roundtable. We are a group of men with the vision to see a reformed church planted in the Lewis County area. Place on January 30th of 2020. It was a Thursday night. There were several men there. We discussed two different talks R.C. Sproul gave. The first talk was on Scripture alone, also known as Sola Scriptura. We listened to the talk. It's about 20, 22 minutes. Then we discussed it. And then we listened to another talk by R.C. Sproul, uh, his first talk on Sola Fide, or by faith alone. We will play first his talk on Sola Scriptura. Then we'll play the discussion that ensued after that. Then we'll play R.C. Sproul's talk on faith alone. And then we'll finish with the discussion that we had on the talk on faith alone. I hope you enjoy it, and if you would like to join us in our quest to plant a church in the Lewis County area, a Reformed church, a church that can bring the glories of the Reformation in a way that are not currently being represented, then I would encourage you to reach out either via SoundCloud, which this is playing through, or you can also reach me directly at my email, which is joecstout at gmail.com, and we'd love to bring you into the fold. And with that, we'll go ahead and turn it over to R.C., who's going to take us through Scripture alone. The Bible says that all men are liars, and I'm afraid that uh, I verified the truth of that, uh, at least in terms of its application to myself in our last session, because I concluded our last session by saying from now on we were going to only consider the distinctives of Reformed theology. In the next two sessions, we're going to be studying the doctrine of sola scriptura and sola fide, which I've already told you are critical doctrines held in common by the evangelicals in their traditions. And so I lied, but I didn't lie intentionally, but I was mistaken. I uh, don't want to leave you with the impression that the doctrine of sola scriptura is a distinctly or uniquely reformed theological principle. It is part of that body of truth that we share in common with historical evangelicalism. But having said that, let's look then at this principle that historians call the formal principle of the Protestant Reformation, sola scriptura. In one sense, this concept was born publicly in Luther's famous confrontation with the rulers of the state and the church at the Diet of Worms, whereupon Luther was called to recant of his teaching. And you recall on that occasion when he stood at this solemn place, he said, unless I am convinced by sacred scripture or by evident reason, I cannot recant, for my conscience is held captive by the Word of God. And to act against conscience, said Luther, is neither right nor safe. Here I stand. God help me." Now that's been memorialized in motion picture uh, lore and in the history books and so on. But though this was the public debut in, in a uh, historic sense at Worms. It was not a new concept with Luther. Luther had been more or less forced to say this in earlier debates 
with some of the theologians that were trying to persuade him to change his views, where he earlier had said that it was possible for popes to err, to make mistakes, and even for church councils to make mistakes, but the only absolutely authoritative written source of divine revelation uh, is the Scripture itself. And so we get this word sola that we place before the word scriptura, and the phrase simply means by the Scripture alone. Well, what does this mean? What is the, uh, the, the vantage point that we're concerned about here with the use of this term alone? Well, actually, there's more than one consideration, though they're all interrelated. In the first instance, one of the disputes at the 16th century level was the question of the source of divine revelation. All Christians in the 16th century believed that Christianity is a revealed faith, that its content comes from God. And both sides of the dispute, Rome and Protestantism in the 16th century, agreed that there were at least two distinct places where God gives revelation of Himself. One is in nature, which is called natural revelation or general revelation, whereby the heavens declare the glory of God. And the other, of course, is the Bible. Now, both sides agreed that the Bible was revelation. And both sides agreed that nature is also revelatory. But the dispute over the alone was whether there was more than one source of what we call special revelation. And the Protestant movement said there is only one source of what is called special or written revelation, and that is Scripture, where Rome where Rome confessed its confidence in two sources of special revelation, Scripture and tradition. I've gone over this in other courses, but I want to review the bidding on it now for the context of this study of the essence of Reformed theology. At the Council of Trent, in the 16th century, which was the Roman Catholic Church's response to Luther and to Protestantism. They, the council was held in different sessions at different times, spread out over a few years. And at the fourth session of the Council of Trent, the Roman Catholic Church declared that the truths of God are found in the Scripture and in tradition. And the Latin word that is in the final text of the Council of Trent that links Scripture and tradition is the somewhat innocuous, simple Latin word et, which I used to think when I listened to my grandmother was the past tense of the verb to eat, because she would say, if you et your supper. But uh, that is not. That is simply the Latin word for and. Well, this is a complicated discussion because a, an Anglican scholar in the 20th century was doing his research for his doctoral dissertation, and he was focusing on the fourth uh, uh, session of the Council of Trent, which session ended unexpectedly and abruptly because of the outbreak of war 
on the continent, and there were some loose ends left dangling and some difficult things to explain from the discussions that went on at that time. And what this Anglican scholar noted was that in the first draft of the fourth session of the Council of Trent, uh, the statement was made in Latin that the truth of God is contained partly, uh, parting, partly in Scripture and partly in tradition. Partly in Scripture, partly in tradition which would indicate clearly that there were two separate distinct sources for the church's doctrine, one from the Bible and the other from the historic tradition of the church. Now when that first draft was presented to the council, two priests who were delegates to the council stood up and protested the language. I don't know why I remember their names, but their names were Bonuccio and Nacchianti. Uh, these two Italian priests protested this language saying that it undermined the sufficiency of Scripture. And there the record stops. And we don't know what then transpired in the further debates about their objection. All we know is that the final draft exhibited a change. And the words partum partum, which clearly taught a dual source of special revelation, were crossed out, and in their place was the word et, which may or may not mean two separate sources. The word and here is a little bit ambiguous, isn't it? Because if you said to me, where would you find the Reformed faith? I would say, well, you can find it two places. You can find it in the Bible, or you can look at the confessions that appear in church history that try to give a summary of the Reformed doctrine. Because insofar as those creeds are consistent with the Bible, they are repeating it, and it's just another place that you could go to find it. And so the church may have meant simply to say that we find the truth of God first of all in Scripture, and then as it is represented to us in the historic councils or the decrees of the church, that's the other place you can look, which, would, uh, where, which somebody could say and still hold to sola scriptura. And now that debate uh, continues to this day among contemporary Roman Catholic scholars as to whether their church is committed to two sources or one. Unfortunately, uh, there are those conservatives in the church who said that the change from partum to partum, from partum partum to et, was not a substantive change, but merely a stylistic change, and that the church clearly was meaning to affirm in the 16th century two sources of written revelation. Now, that debate, though it continues, was more or less settled by a papal encyclical of the 20th century, which unambiguously refers to the two sources of revelation. And that has been the mainstream of thinking within the Roman church since the 16th century, that truths that are founded in the tradition of the church are just as binding upon the consciences of believers as the uh, truths of Scripture, whereas in Protestant heritage, uh, 
the principle of semper reformanda is, is embraced by virtually all Protestants. That is, that the church is always called to undergo reformation and always called to check her own creeds and confessions to make sure that they are in conformity to sacred scripture. And, and virtually every Protestant church that has a creed or confession that is unique to their communion will go to great pains to say that their own confessions are not infallible and do not carry the weight of scripture except insofar as they faithfully reproduce the doctrines of the scripture because the overarching principle is affirmed, namely that the Bible alone is that written source that has the authority of God himself, the authority to bind our consciences absolutely. And though we are called to be submissive to lesser authorities and respectful of other authorities, in my own church I am called to submit to the authority of the presbytery or to the session of the local church. There are all kinds of levels of authority. And, and I'm told that if I find in conscience I can no longer genuinely submit that it is my duty to withdraw from that communion peaceably. But otherwise, I'm not to disturb the peace of the church by uh, acting in direct conflict to the confessions or the, uh, the government of the church. And yet at the same time, the church says, we know our confessions could be wrong, and some of the ordinances of our church are possibly uh, incorrect. In but this is what we believe to be the true, and as long as you're going to serve here, you have this obligation to submit to it. It's not that sola scriptura eliminates other authorities, but what it says is there's only one authority that can absolutely bind the conscience, and that authority is sacred scripture, and that all controversies over doctrine and theology must be settled in the final analysis by scripture. Now, there are other aspects, as I said, about uh, this sola besides the business of, uh, uh, of being the only source of written revelation, and second, the only authority that can bind absolutely, but not the only authority at all, but also involved in this affirmation in the 16th century was a clear affirmation that the Bible is the vox dei, or the verbum dei, the word of God or the voice of God, being infallible and inerrant because it comes to us by the superintendence of God the Holy Spirit, that the Bible is inspired in the sense that its author ultimately is God, even though it is transmitted through human writers the ultimate source of its truth and of its content comes from God, and God, of course, is infallible. Human writers, in and of themselves, are fallible, but the view of historic Protestantism was that God so assisted the weaknesses of our fallen humanity as to preserve the Bible from the corruption that one would normally expect to find from the writings of human beings by his divine superintendence and by the special ministry 
of the Holy Spirit. And so that even though the Bible comes to us in human words and by human authors, it is considered to be of divine origin. Now, I realize that in light of the dispute in our own day over the infallibility of the Scripture and the inspiration of the Scripture and the inerrancy of the Scripture, words that have engendered all kinds of uh, theological controversy, there have been those who have protested loudly that the very idea of an infallible or inerrant Scripture was not something that was taught and embraced by the magisterial reformers of the 16th century, but was the result of the intrusion of a kind of Protestant scholasticism that came to pass in the 17th century, which is called the Age of Reason, uh, where these rationalists were so concerned about certainty that they had almost a psychological or emotional need for certainty to such a degree that they invented this concept of inerrancy and infallibility. Well, now that question directly is not a question of whether the Bible is infallible. It's a question of where the doctrine came from. It's a historical question. Is this something that was invented in the 17th century or in the 16th century? Let me take a few moments to just read a few quotes to you from the magisterial reformers of the 16th century and let you decide for yourself. Here are a few observations that I've included in my book uh, the, that come from the pen of Martin Luther. Luther says this, quote, The Holy Spirit Himself and God, the Creator of all things, is the author of this book. Another quote, Scripture, although also written of men, is not of men, nor from men, but from God. Again, he who would not read these stories in vain must firmly hold that Holy Scripture is not human, but divine wisdom. Again, the word must stand, for God cannot lie, and heaven and earth must go to ruins before the most insignificant letter or tittle of His Word remains unfulfilled. And then he cites Augustine. St. Augustine says in his letter to St. Jerome, quote, I have learned to hold only the Holy Scripture inerrant. Now that's not Luther quoting a 17th century scholar. That's Luther quoting Augustine from the end of the 4th century where Augustine says, I have learned to hold only the Scripture inerrant. Again, he says, in the books of St. Augustine, one finds many passages which flesh and blood have spoken. And concerning myself, I must also confess that when I talk apart from the ministry at home, at table, or elsewhere, I speak many words that are not God's Word. That is why St. Augustine in a letter to Jerome, has put down a fine axiom the, that only Holy Scripture is to be considered inerrant. So we see that Luther <coughs> hardly hedges. Another passage I could quote from Luther in which he says, the Scriptures never err. Now, I don't know that Luther ever used the word inerrancy. He just used the word inerrant. 
and said that the Bible never errs, which is the very essence of the concept of inerrancy. So I think it's a fool's errand to try to argue that the reformers of the 16th century were strangers and foreigners to the idea of the inspiration and the authority and the infallibility and the inerrancy of sacred scripture. But one of the other important points of sola scriptura in the 16th century, which has become a very important uh, principle for historic evangelicalism, was a hermeneutical principle. Uh, the scriptures, uh, the reformers not only confessed their view of what the scriptures are and where they came from, but they also expressed their views on how the Bible is to be interpreted and who has the right and responsibility to read it. One of the radical things that happened in the Reformation was the translation of the Bible into the vernacular, taking it out of the hands of those who were able to read Latin and or Greek or Hebrew and putting it in the hands of people who could only read in their native tongues. As Luther translated the Bible into German and Wycliffe translated the Bible into England, English and so on, and in some cases the people who did that paid for it with their lives. Because the principle that was asserted in historic evangelicalism was the principle, first of all, of private interpretation, meaning that every Christian has the right and the responsibility to read the Bible for themselves, and they have the right to interpret it for themselves. Now that was heard by Rome, as witnessed in the fourth session of Trent, to mean that the Protestants were giving license to the rank-and-file church member not only to read the Bible for themselves, but to distort it at, at will. And of course, the Reformers uh, were horrified at that idea. They said every Christian has the right to interpret the Bible for themselves, but no Christian ever has the right to misinterpret it or to distort it according to their own whims or their own prejudices. The principle was of private interpretation was based upon an, another principle, which was the principle of the perspicuity of Scripture, which is a three-dollar word for clarity. Now, Luther said there are many parts of Scripture that are difficult to handle, and that's why we need teachers in the church and commentaries and all of that. But that the basic message, that message that is necessary for a person to understand and grasp is plain for any person to see it. And when, when Luther talked about giving the Bible to the, to the laity, the church said, if you do that, that'll open up a floodgate of iniquity because people will start creating all kinds of horrible distortions, which is exactly what happened. But Luther said, if that is the case, and if a floodgate of iniquity is opened by opening the pages of the Bible to people, so be it. But the message that is clear is so important. It's the, it, it contains the message of our salvation. It is so important and so clear that we'll take the risks of all of the distortions and all of the heresies that go with that to make sure that the central message of Scripture is heard. 
And as a result of this affirmation of Sola Scriptura, the Bible was put into the church, and the reading of the scriptures and preaching from the scriptures became central to the liturgy and to the worship of historic Protestantism. <clears throat> Wasn't there another thing in there too with the um, the Roman Catholic Church? Wasn't there that ex cathedra thing where the Pope could kind of add some stuff in there or something like that? Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, is that ex cathedra? Cathedra being like the Latin root for throne. The cathedral is the throne room, and so they'd sit ex cathedra on the throne mm -hmm. and be the voice of God. Yeah. Right. I don't know what means anything to us necessarily, mm -hmm. but I was always under the impression that Rome worked off of a three-legged stool, meaning the Bible, dogma, mm -hmm. and ex-cathedra, and dogma, I guess, would be tradition. I don't know. I don't know that much right. about the Catholic Church, even though I got married in it, I seemed to have strayed. <laughs> I know where, um, that, when maybe that ideology of ex-cathedra was established, if it was, you know, from ages past or... Mm -hmm. If it was part of the tradition, it was part of the tradition, right? Originally, if it came after like the 1600s, right? Yeah. Now, doesn't it also seem like? Uh, sorry, I kind of cut you off there, Luke, but maybe this will fit in. Uh, doesn't it also seem like, you know, even sola scriptura um, uh, interpretation is like huge. I mean. Mm -hmm. I mean, but he's right, you know, it's kind of hard to miss the salvation message, mm -hmm. but it seems like interpretation is like, whoa, it's just, mm -hmm. I mean, there's some kind of diverse thoughts out there from, from Protestants within Protestants, and I guess within Rome too, I don't know. Yeah. Eastern Orthodox, sure. Yeah. And I think if, if scripture is not handled with great care in the interpretation aspect, I think it's very easy for people to end up in a very not good place very quickly. Yeah. And even with good intention, just mm. without I said, really taking the time to really analyze what you're reading, the context of what you're reading, what mm. it means, why it means what it means. Sure. You know, where else is that word used? Why is it used there? Mm. And even the cultural aspects of some of the things that are said. Well, that's like the huge one, I think, this is the cultural yeah. aspect. If, you, if, you've got a, if your worldview has been cultivated mm -hmm. exclusively by your culture, then you have no choice but to interpret the scripture as, mm -hmm. you know, then, then you see, you know, racism in the scripture and you see sexism in scripture. Well, people, people didn't used to see those things in scripture. They see those things because they come from a culture that sees those things everywhere. Mm -hmm. And I think the, one of the... Um, strongest arguments Catholics have against Protestants is the is exactly the, <laughs> the floodgates of what was the floodgates of evil or debauchery or whatever it was that he said. Yeah, all but, sorts of uh, all sorts of different ter right. terrible uh, yeah. ideas that would spawn off of the idea that you can interpret that for you. Yeah. And, and I think it kind of comes down to like a, a form of spiritual arrogance. Like, mm -hmm. well, I've got you know, this is it's my Bible, and I'm going to interpret it. You know, you're, you know, irrespective of what anyone else has ever said on this. Never mind the fact that I'm coming up with completely novel and never before heard of theologies. I'm going to do it, and and that's, I think that's much more the Protestant view than it would ever be the Catholic view. Not that the Catholic view of you know holding it only to the Church and only the Church can ever interpret 
Not that that's right either, but it's, uh, I liked how he said, which is exactly what happened. <laughs> I know. I thought that was pretty funny. <laughs> but, you know, God, I, there's kind of a sense in which you believe God to take care of himself or mm-hmm. he take, to take care of the, the truth of his word, in, you know, even in, the, in, in our fallible hands. Well, I, was saying, I think I think as long as the person doing the interpreting is doing it prayerfully, understanding like I have a sinful mind, and mm-hmm. as much as I desire to see this done rightly, you know, we end up with sinful ambition at times or yeah. skewing things slightly. Yeah, and sometimes honest mistakes. Yeah, I like what he said about um, how we've talked about this on several weeks now about how one of the things that the Protestants absolutely got right is the idea that. Christianity, or we always need to be constantly reevaluating what we believe, holding it up to the light of Scripture, and saying, "Does this stand or not?" Mm-hmm. Like the good kind of like always be reforming kind of idea. Yeah. Yeah. Like take take your sacred cows and hold them up to Scripture and see if they can survive or not. Yeah. Uh, because we we hold on to things for tradition's sake, even without quite realizing it. Yeah, I picked up on that also just because of our conversation about well, what does reformed mean and does not mean that you're always reforming you know, in light of your current culture you right. know, we talked about the article and all this yeah. stuff and so yeah to have him just kind of put it out there is yes always reforming but mm-hmm. reforming against and holding that scripture yeah. as the standard in the background so. yeah think about Luther a year before and a year after his declaration, I mean, he's slowly evolving throughout yeah. that whole process. A year later, you'd be going, wow, that guy is totally still Roman Catholic because of all the things he would be thinking. But I mean, it just, it's, yeah. you're kind of stuck with what you grow up with and, and you have yeah. to work through it. Yeah, on, on Reformation Day last year, I printed off the 95 Theses and I didn't read them all because it's a lengthy document, but it was, there was some, really fun ones <laughs> to read like you know totally non-protestant thoughts yeah. <laughs> but but you know it's just like you you're, you're shaking off the you're shaking off the dark the, the scales that have clouded your vision um, and if, with that in mind like it was just so Holy Spirit inspired the clarity that he was given in the midst of that uh, in the midst of that theological atmosphere I thought it was also very interesting how he, um, I, I wasn't aware of the debate even within the Council of Trent about as to the nature of, is it, you know, are they two separate things, two separate authorities, or is it all, it all comes from scripture, but also we look to, uh, I liked how he talked about looking towards tradition and your elders and different lesser authorities that don't bind your conscience absolutely the way the Bible does. Mm-hmm. But they, but they do have authority over you to a certain extent, mm-hmm. uh, an authority to his presbytery, to to be in line with the presbytery, in, in, in you know, with his denomination, until he can't, in good conscience, be in line with it anymore, and then he needs to let them know and peaceably find another place to worship. Mm-hmm. I thought that was really, really, really helpful. Mm-hmm. Well, it's like Paul in Scripture saying, you know, submit to all authority, and you know, and he's saying that at the time when Nero was. <laughs> Running around causing trouble, um, that, but obviously that's only to a certain extent. Mm. But God puts people in authority over us who aren't yeah. necessarily the most righteous of individuals. Right. 
right? Is that that's in Romans? Right? I believe so. Yeah. Is he in prison? Was he in prison while he, when he wrote Romans? Actually, don't remember. Ron, was he in prison? I I don't know. Honestly, yeah. I, can't tell you. I don't know that part of it. I don't think it. I don't think it was. Yeah, I I kind of think it'd be hard to write Romans thirteen while in prison. He was uh, was in prison when he wrote Ephesians, which is about 61, 62 AD, so I'm just not familiar with the timeline. Right. I guess kind of house arrest type stuff. Right, yeah, exactly. Well, just he's got that part in Romans 13 where he talks about the magistrate being the hand of God, or, you know, he's been given the sword so that he can can keep the populace. Upright, you know, basically, you know, he's he's there to punish the evildoer and and give give uh, honor to the people who are doing right. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like he's maybe more describing something that ought to be rather than maybe is at the time, especially if he's in prison. But he was not in prison. He was not. Okay. I don't. There wasn't like any other bombshells. I don't know as far as you know, looking at what he had to say about scripture law. I, I feel like that's a that's a fairly commonly agreed to yeah. uh, aspect of theology in general, theology yeah. proper, although you do find many um, wayward churches that would say, True. oh, no, there's errors. Yeah. You know, and, and coming, and sometimes you wonder a little bit about how to answer people who want to say, oh, well, this this Bible copy in this day such and such had this and right. it doesn't work out the math doesn't work or sure. that in certain censuses or whatever but well even within the context of like wanting to start a church like you know we're still expo- we're exploring that idea of starting a church here um, you know give me the I've said this before but give me the fundamentalist that uh, maybe is a little bit what I what I would consider wonky on some of the lesser points of scripture, but believes the whole thing to be the inerrant word of God any day over the liberal that, you know, the theological liberal that, that doesn't really believe any of it, you know, or just sees it as like a, at the, at the same level as any other historical document. Because ultimately what, when we talk about Sola Scriptura, he's, I thought R.C. was very gracious in the way he said, this is not a Reformed exclusive. Anyone within the Protestant world that is committed to Christ believes this. Mm-hmm. The, the other, uh, there's one of my favorite books. Uh, a guy, uh, it's, oh, what's his name? It was just called, uh, Theo, it's, it's called uh, I think it's called Christianity and Liberalism. It was written back in the, th- uh, the 30s. Um, and the liberalism he's talking about is not political. It's just it's just theological liberalism. But he, uh, I think it's is it Men, Men, Menken, Menchin. Yeah. I think it's Menchin. Is it Menchin? Okay. He he makes the he makes the one of the thesis of the book is that uh, the, the the liberal Christian is just simply not a Christian. <laughs> you know, because when you deny the virgin birth, when you deny the creation of the world, when you deny the miracles of Jesus, when you deny the resurrection. You are, you are, you know, you're basically explaining yourself to the world to not be that of the, of the faith persuasion of Christianity. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's helpful to kind of understand is that theological liberalism within the Christian world is kind of just not Christianity at all. Whereas we, you could have like the, maybe on one end of the spectrum, the, 
you know, maybe wildly charismatic and maybe the frozen chosen on the other end of the spectrum. And as long as you are trusting in Christ and believing in, in, you know, his death and resurrection, you're in, you know, you're one of us. Although we think that maybe there's better ways of worshiping him than, uh, than others. The theological liberalism, the idea of just explaining it all away, that, that's, that kind of excludes you from, from, from one of us. At least that's how I, I would kind of, I would tend to, to see that. Obviously, there's going to be a spectrum there as well, but you know that's where it gets really dangerous when you start trying to rationalize the Bible away. And so that's where sola scriptura is so vital in that. Yeah, and I know that can be a stumbling block too for some people who maybe wholeheartedly believe in in things such as you know virgin birth and resurrection, which this whole idea to me is a little bit wonky, but you know, but then don't believe that the earth could have been created in the literal seven day, you know, sure. the literal seven six day creation. So right. because science disproves that, you know, that right. type of thing. And and you can get I, I can see where people have that, you know, depending on their education, depending on how they're raised, you know, sure. they have this ingrained in them and they want to make it fit. Yeah. So that's when I was like, does someone who denies maybe one of those things, are they, are yeah. they on the outside? Or Sure. You know. Well, I think of like a guy like Tim Keller, who is, I really, I admire him. I respect, I respect his teaching on a lot of things. But I mean, he started the Biologos, um, uh, the ministry called Biologos, which is all about, you know, reaching Christians who are not seven-day creation Christians are all, you know, theistic evolutionists. And so it's not like I don't think Tim Keller is one of us, but it's kind of like, yeah, you know, why is, why is this your thing? You know, uh, there's all of these, it seems like uh, the whole seven day creation thing, it's the Bible is meant to be understood and to come up with this, you know, to try to shoehorn, you know, the scientific method into the first three chapters of Genesis, just, it seems like there's two great of a chance that you're wrong <laughs> and it'd just be so much safer to just believe God the way, you know, anyone in the course of history would have believed him. That's what Tim thinks. Tim, yeah, Tim, guy, yeah, Tim Keller is a great, he's a great guy. He's a, he's a good reform guy too. He's just, um, he's a theistic evolutionist and he actually, he started a ministry called Biologos that is all about theistic evolution. Okay. Um, yeah. And so I would not... Oh, obviously, he's not a Christian. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if you if you deny creation in six days, resting on the seventh, um, it's like page one of the Bible, and there's just... You're, you're subject to... Yeah. I mean, where does the error quit after that? Mm-hmm. And who knows? I mean, and, yeah. I don't know anything about Tim, but I'm just right. saying it's a real tough place to go. Completely agree. There's a whole bunch of scientific evidence out there for a recent creation, too. Yeah, mm-hmm. I agree. And people don't want to believe that, so they don't investigate it. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's embarrassing to... Well, even this last Sunday, that was what uh, Mike Strobach was yeah. talking about, and, and I felt like he did a pretty good job of kind of showing that. There's a lot of it. When you really look at some of the evidence, you're like, mm. this is ridiculous that people believe this. Sure. Um, yeah. And the only thing I would say back at that, because I, I mean, I feel like Is I that know. you agree with me? I appreciate that. <laughs> I, I 100% agree with you. Um, just having known some, some close friends that have been kind of hardcore in the seven-day creation camp and then have kind of had their faith 
whatever you want to call their faith, their faith kind of rocked by this whole idea of evolution. And now, you know, they, they've kind of survived it. So they're not like atheists now, but they also are kind of more, they still believe God created the world, but that they just did it somehow differently than in the literal seven days. I don't know. I'm, I don't agree with it at all, but it's, it's kind of like, I want to, I want to extend grace where you can, whereas if you're denying the resurrection, it's kind of like, well, that's... Yeah, they aren't going to sit in that chair and you're going to say you can't come to church because you're obviously not a believer. It's, it's just, it's yeah. it's a tough thing. I understand. It's, I don't know if it's confusing. I don't have answers for it. Sure. It's, you know. I have two good friends that are, that, are um, that hold more to a theistic evolution stance. I haven't seen him in eight years. <laughs> we quit talking a long time. It's been a good decade. They're kind of dead to me, but... Um, no, <laughs> no. I mean, like they love the Lord. Like we've had some really good conversations about some, you know, kind of heavier topics. But that one we disagree on, mm-hmm. you know. And I agree. I think it is kind of a tough place to be in because exactly what you said. You're, you know, it kind of can undermine or it makes wishy washy a whole lot of other things if you don't trust the first first book of the Bible. But or maybe the second generation after you. That starts with the they don't believe in the, the seven day creation. Now, yeah. now it's on to the next thing. Well, now we don't believe in, you know. But if you look, yeah, and you're right. Everything just just here's just a little added thing. If you're getting ready to send your kids off to college because you think that's the way to go, which sure. I think it's great and all that kind of stuff, but it's a tough place to be. Yeah. And then you go and you look at uh, Seattle Pacific College and you go, wow, they don't even believe in. Uh, creationism yeah they definitely believe in you know some type of theistic mm-hmm. evolution and, you know Pacific Lutheran University a long time ago did they leave any realm of Christianity so so it is kind of a it's like a gateway drug how to get yeah. away from Christianity or something like that mm-hmm. and then everything becomes suspect because if that is mm-hmm. and, and maybe it isn't a matter um, Spencer of it being in you know where it's in air, maybe it's just you know your interpretation isn't as good as his interpretation or something like that. I don't know how that. Well, the thing works. that's scary about it too is if if you did send your kids off into the college realm with that wishy washy on that first book of Genesis, they're going up into they're going into a place where they may be confronted on that topic by people who have their doctorate degree in mm-hmm. geology and. You know, people who have their doctorate yeah. degree in, in biology and all these other things who, I mean, obviously... They can run circles around. They, exactly. They, your kid's going to go, geez, I don't know what I'm talking about. Right. I guess this guy's right or this gal's right. And and that's, you know, instead of just saying, you know, this is the inerrant, perfect word of God that we know to be true. And, you know, using that as your... If your kid's dead set on that and understands why they're dead set on that, I think then they're like... Okay, you can talk your circles, but <laughs> yeah. this is what I believe, and here's why I believe it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I know we want to. We need to be out of here by seven thirty. So, do we want to do another one? We got time. We got forty minutes. Yeah, let's do it. Yeah. Let's week one in. Okay. So, faith alone is that right? Uh, yeah, part Just one. So we continue our study on the basic themes of Reformed theology, you recall that in our last session we looked at the formal principle of the Protestant Reformation, the doctrine of sola scriptura. And today we're going to look at what the historians call 
the material cause of the Reformation, the central controversy over which the whole debate raged, which was the doctrine of sola fide. And the term sola fide uh, contains this sola again, which means alone. And fide is the word for faith coming from fidelis. We remember the Marine Corps motto, Semper Fi or Semper Fidelis, or the hymn, Adeste Fidelis, so come all ye faithful. Sola fide means faith alone. And this was the central assertion of Martin Luther that provoked the serious controversy of the 16th century. And he was speaking to the question, how is a person justified in the sight of God. Now before we give a brief exposition of the doctrine of justification by faith alone, I want to take a few moments to recap for you the urgency that the magisterial reformers felt about this issue. They did not think that the debate over justification was an argument over some fine point of theology whereby theologians get together and nitpick over secondary issues and so on. But they were convinced of not only the truth of justification by, soul, by faith alone, but also believed that it was of critical importance. Luther said that justification by faith alone is the article upon which the church stands or falls. Now, we could view that from the vantage point of the 20th century perhaps as an exaggeration or as an overstatement, but I'm just mentioning at this point that it was clearly Luther's conviction that this doctrine was so important because it touched the very heart and soul of the gospel itself. And again, it, it is Luther's contention that justification is the article upon which the church stands or falls, and it's the article upon which we stand or fall because it is the article that we understand that reveals to us how we are redeemed. Calvin took a similar view of the importance of the doctrine. He used a different metaphor. He said that justification by faith alone is the hinge upon which everything in the Christian life turns. In our own day, J.I. Packer, in his preface to Buchanan's 19th century work on justification, used another striking metaphor where he likened the doctrine of justification by faith alone to the mythological figure of Atlas, whose task it was to bear the world on his shoulders. And what Dr. Packer was saying with this analogy was, just as Atlas is required to hold up the world, so the doctrine of justification by faith alone is that which holds everything else up. Well, the controversy, as we know, flared and ended in perhaps the most, uh, not perhaps, but certainly the most serious fragmentation of Christendom in the history of the church and became the most volatile controversy of all time. Now, again, before I get into an exposition of it, 
I'd like to read a comment that Martin Luther, a couple of comments from Luther. First of all, uh, an expanded comment of his view of the importance of it. And then second, a comment that referred in later years of Luther's life to his profound concern that the recovery of the biblical doctrine of justification by faith alone would be short-lived. First, his, his expanded comment on the importance of it. He says, this doctrine is the head and the cornerstone. It alone begets, nourishes, builds, preserves, and defends the church of God. And without it, the church of God cannot exist for one hour. And again, he said, the article of justification is the master and prince, the Lord, the ruler, and the judge over all kinds of doctrines. It preserves and governs all church doctrine and raises up our conscience before God. Without this article, the world is utter death and darkness. No error is so mean, so clumsy, and so outworn as not to be supremely pleasing to human reason and to seduce us if we are without the knowledge and the contemplation of this article. And then, as I said in his later life, he made this observation. There are few who know and understand this article, and I treat it again and again because I greatly fear that after we have laid our head to rest, it will soon be forgotten and will again disappear. And indeed, we cannot grasp or exhaust Christ, the eternal righteousness, with one sermon or thought, for to learn to appreciate Him is an everlasting lesson which we shall not be able to finish either in this or in yonder life." Now, if I can add my own personal observation to those of Luther, Calvin, and Packer, it would be this, that I think that the doctrine of justification by faith alone, of all of the doctrines of systematic theology, is relatively easy to grasp with the mind. It's not that complicated or so arcane or, or obtuse that only uh, specialized uh, experts in the field of theology can grasp. But to get the doctrine from our heads into our bloodstreams is another matter altogether. Because it is one thing to understand a doctrine, it is another thing to have it be the controlling aspect of the faith by which we live before God. And another thing I want to say before we proceed to an exposition is that we are not saved by a doctrine. It's not faith in the doctrine of justification by faith alone that is what redeems a person. It is the content to which the doctrine points that is so central and crucial to our salvation. Well, again, we ask why. The fundamental question that the doctrine of justification is trying to answer, and 
succeeds in that attempt is the question, how can an unjust person ever survive the final judgment of a just and holy God? And as soon as we ask that question, we see instantly why it is a matter of great importance, not just a question of dotting I's and crossing T's in passing an exam in systematic theology, but it is the question of how are we to stand before God? We remember David's anguish and pathos and poignancy in his question, O Lord, if thou should mark iniquities, who would stand? And it was a rhetorical question because David understood the answer to that question. He was ex experiencing something that we all should experience the moment our conscience alarms us to the presence of sin in our lives. He's saying, oh God, if you keep a record, if you keep track, and if you bring this into the judgment, who can stand? And the answer is obviously what? No one can stand. I just had a conversation yesterday with a friend of mine who is Jewish, and he was asking me questions about Christianity and wanted to know what's the basic difference between the Christian faith and his own uh, religious background. And I said to him, what do you do with your guilt? And he began to, to fumble around, and he said, well, I guess I just have to keep trying harder to obey the laws, to keep kosher, and, and to repent when I do wrong, and so on. And then I went on beyond that, and I said, okay, how is God going to forgive you if no atonement has been made for you other than the sacrifices of bulls and goats? And that led us into a lengthy discussion of what the gospel proclaims at its heart. Because the good news is that God, according to the Apostle Paul, is both just and justifier of sinful people. Now let's look at those, those concepts as they are put together. That God is both just and justifier. Now both of these concepts have to be clear in our mind if we're going to understand the gospel of the New Testament. The gospel does not say that God simply unilaterally declares forgiveness to everybody in the world. Certainly the doctrine of justification includes the doctrine of divine mercy and of the remission of sins. That's very important to us, and, and, it, and it sets forth before our eyes a God who is a forgiving God. But I remember when I was a student in the Netherlands that uh, I had great difficulty trying to learn a foreign language in which to do my doctoral studies. And one of the biggest problems I had with the language is the same kind of problem we all have when we learn other languages, and it's the problem of learning the peculiar idioms of a nation or of a, of a particular language. Somebody was talking to me the other day, and he said, well, I don't make any bones about that. And one of the people who was standing nearby 
was a guest in this country. He had learned English, and he, he was just completely befuddled by that expression, make no bones about it. He said, what in the world does that mean? And we had to explain the nuances of that strange idiom. Well, one of the idioms that threw me in, when I was in Holland was an idiom that uh, uh, was used by one of my professors when he was talking about how God responds to the sin of human beings. And he said, God does not look at sin through his fingers. And that's, that stopped me in my tracks. I said, I have no idea what he's talking about. Uh, God doesn't look at our sin through his fingers. And it wasn't until much later when I was trying to practice uh, learning vocabulary by reading Perry Mason novels in Dutch that I uh, read a little episode in a Perry Mason case where a policeman uh, was talking to a man who was illegally parked, but there was an urgent reason for it, and the, and the policeman was talking to the man about another matter and wanted to, uh, the man to accompany him somewhere, and the man said, well, I can't keep my car here, you're going to give me a ticket for parking in this way. And the policeman says, oh, don't worry about it, I'll look at it through my fingers. Ah, so we use the expression to wink at it. And the point is, is that when God, in His mercy, offers forgiveness to those of us who are guilty before Him, the whole process of divine forgiveness does not mean that God simply winks at our sin, and therefore, and thereby, compromises his own righteous character or his justice. His way of justifying guilty people is worked out from all eternity in such a manner that God himself remains just. But again, that brings us back to the original question. If God is just, and I am not just, and I have to face His just judgment, how can I possibly stand? What I am in need of, most desperately, for all eternity, is to be justified. Now, what the Bible says is that God is both just and the justifier. So that however he works out his justification, he does it without compromising his own justice. And the second point here that is so crucial is that it is God who does the justifying. Now that's not difficult to understand, but the implications are clear, aren't they? If it is God who is the one who justifies, what does that say about my ability to justify myself? I can't do anything to justify myself, nor can anyone else justify me in this world, nor can the church justify me. It is God and God alone who can pronounce the final verdict of my justification or my lack of it. So in the first instance, the reformers of the 16th century insisted that justification is forensic. 
And so they were teaching what is called forensic justification. Now this term is a term that is not commonly used in the church. The most frequent place where we hear references to forensics is in criminal trials uh, on Perry Mason or the O.J. Simpson trial or something where we hear about forensic pathology or forensic evidence or we have state forensics in, uh, that involve competition in debate and public speaking and so on. Because the term forensic here has to do with some kind of announcement or pronouncement in the arena of law. So when we talk about justifications being forensic, we mean by that that in the final analysis, God justifies us when He declares, pronounces, that in His sight we are considered, deemed, or regarded as just. So forensic justification involves God's declaration of a person's being just in his sight. And as I say, it is a legal declaration by which God declares a person just. Now I used a, a string of words a moment ago that I want to elaborate on. I said he judges us, declares us, or deems us, or reckons us, or counts us as just. Now to get a hold of that, we have to do a little foray now into some simple Latin that we've explained in other uh, courses, but we'll take the time to do it again. It is Luther's summation of the sum and substance of the doctrine of justification by faith alone in his famous slogan, Simul Justus et Peccator. Simul is the word from which we get the English simultaneous. Justus is the word for just. Et is the word for and. Peccator, we get the word from uh, the word impeccable or peccadillo and so on is the word for sinner. So what Luther is saying is that in the doctrine of justification by faith alone, what is happening here is that those who are justified are at the same time just and sinner. Now Luther's not engaging in contradiction here. He doesn't mean that we're just and sinner at the same time and in the same relationship. In other words, it's a different sense that we are just from the sense in which we are sinner. Now the good news of the gospel, according to Luther, is precisely at this point that what Luther is saying is that the glory of the gospel is that God pronounces people just while they are still sinners. That he declares a person to be righteous in his sight and before his law when under analysis they are still sinners. Now, it is that judgment of declaring somebody just 
who in and of themselves is not just, that creates so much of the controversy over the doctrine and has led some critics of the Reformation to say that the Reformers postulated a legal fiction that has God guilty of lying, saying that somebody is righteous when in fact they are not. But the biblical concept of justification rests upon God's reckoning or counting people to be something that in and of themselves they are not. It reaches all the way back to the book of Genesis, to the 15th chapter of Genesis, when God made certain promises to the patriarch Abraham. And the author of Genesis tells us that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. And what Paul speaks of in the New Testament is this same concept by which God accounts or reckons people who put their trust in Christ as being just, not because their faith atones for all of their sins, or because their faith is such a supreme form of righteousness that it covers all of our unrighteousness, but rather the reason why God counts us righteous is because of the work of Christ in our behalf. And so I conclude this introduction to the doctrine of justification, which we'll continue in our next session, by saying that really the expression justification by faith alone is theological shorthand for justification by Christ alone. Because the fundamental issue is this. On the basis of whose righteousness does God declare anyone just? And the Reformation answered that clearly, that the only grounds by which God will ever view me as being righteous is the grounds of somebody else's righteousness the righteousness of Christ. I think I knew <clears throat> the uh, sola fide, um, sola gratia, sola Christos, um, those are all just shorthand for the prefix of justification by faith alone, through grace alone, by Christ alone. Is that, is that the way you guys remember that? I haven't gone through these videos yet, so. Yeah. That would be my take on that, yes. Because I, was, I, was, I thought it was a little bit... Um, like I f finally started to get it at the end there that sola fide was all about justification. It wasn't about... had nothing to do with us. <laughs> it's like, okay, that makes more, actually more sense that sola fide would be it's such not, an important thing. Not just about our faith. Right. Oh, how does our faith develop? That's all, you know, where does right. that faith come from? Yeah, yeah. more so rounding... Yeah, because then you already talked about, I mean, faith in what? Kind of the exodus from the desert? Or faith in that Goliath really was slain by David? I mean, those are good things, but that's... Hmm. You, could, you could, you know, how about faith in... Um, what were we just talking about? Oh, Gracious and, 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 and that type of stuff. Yeah. I mean, that, that's good, but that's why you say Tim can still be sitting there and yeah. 
Right. When I was, and I know I told you this, when uh, Chuck and I were out uh, riding hmm. this uh, summer, we went around, we've done a few bike trips together. I, he was, we were in high school together and went a little bit to college together and we went different places. But um, we're going around the peninsula and he's reading something in the newspaper and Chuck is very liberal, he's not a believer. And so I'm talking to him and so oh, you know, that's an interesting point is he just, whatever the newspaper says, that's it. <laughs> and I said, so let's think about it like this. So here we have Jesus Christ and he's heard far more of this than he wants to hear. And he, and he dies on the cross and, he, and, and then God raised him from the dead and Chuck goes, wait, that's where I differ. I just don't believe that. I'm going, oh, this is gonna be a hard conversation. <laughs> so we kinda, I mean, it's not like we haven't chatted before, but I'm just saying, to me, I mean, there's the core of it right there. I mean, if you can't buy into that, then, then you've got some issues because there's a ton of things you didn't buy into, but I'm just, was trying to, I didn't even realize at that time, it's like, oh no, I don't believe that. Mm. But that is where the shed blood is, that's mm. the whole principle of it, that's mm. what Christ's mission was when he came and went yeah. and, and whatnot. And so that, that I was kind of going, come on RC, let's <laughs> get into what was our faith in. <laughs> yeah, maybe part two will. Oh yeah, no, I'm sure that. he knows what he's doing. Well, I like what he said though, where he said um, that it's not our faith in um, the doctrine, the, the doctrine, but yeah. it's what the doctrine points to. That isn't, which you know, they talk about, you know, justification. Yeah, you're not saved by your good theology. Yeah, that doesn't exactly. Make sense. So it's always a good reminder when you're studying theology and mm -hmm. you know, kind of hanging your hat whether on oh, well, this is what we think is right and proper, and it's like, well, that's a theology, that's an idea. Right. You know, it's kind of too wrapped up in like, oh, well, it has this name, and there's just one side of it. Obviously, it's all biblical, and that's why we're listening to it. But right, yeah, appreciate that too. That he's like, you're not saved by your doctrine. <laughs> well, I, so I think that was why it was so important that he prefaced this whole thing that first video we watched, where he said, like, just to clarify, <laughs> like, right. there's a lot of these ideas fall into other, um, you know, ideologies within the Christian faith. So it's not like we're the only ones that adhere to these things. Yeah. Um, so, you know, there's some of the people who we might not agree with them theologically, but they're still justified yeah. because they still, you know, have their faith in Christ. And um, I know I've made the comparison often that, um, you know, Christ calls us to a childlike faith, not childish faith, mm -hmm. um, in that a child doesn't even think about their faith in their dad or their mom or their, their the family that they're a part of or that they'll have food on the table that they, you know outside of maybe complaining they don't really even give it any thought at all and it seems to be that's the kind of faith we're being called to is the kind of faith where you it's not that you've got like R.C. was saying all of your T's crossed and all of your I's dotted it's it's the work that Christ has done on your behalf and you simply are just a cheerful recipient of it <laughs> You, you don't necessarily have to have everything figured out because the, the childlike faith is, is just an, an implicit faith that God knows what he's doing and, and uh, that he'll, he will be the one. He is just and the justifier.
think you're starting to boil it down in the end of part one there with you know on the basis of whose righteousness mm-hmm. you know, does God justify anyone right whose righteousness like oh is that your own is that your good deeds is that your good works it's like yeah it gets at the heart, heart of the, the question and how, how am I justified yeah I was talking with a good friend last night and, and he he works at the high school and has been witnessing he works with Young Life too and he's been witnessing to these two boys um, at the high school and, and um, they were talking about Kobe Bryant um, and you know he was famous in prime of life money success everything and yet it didn't prevent him from going to meet his maker. You know, it didn't save him. It just kind of brought to the surface the fact that we all, no matter who you are, you are going to die one day. Mm-hmm. And so he was talking to these boys about like, you know, uh, I forget exactly how he said he put it to them, but like, <coughs> you know, wouldn't it be nice to have assurance that you would, that you know what, you know, what you, the response to God, what your presence before God, what kind of response he would have or you know, where you would spend eternity with. And they're like, oh yeah, I know, I'm going to heaven. I've, I've done more good than bad, so I'm going to heaven. You know, and it's just kind of like, it's, and then he'd been working with them a long time. He's like, are you sure about that? They're like, oh wait, no, it's because I believe in Jesus. <laughs> but uh, but he, uh, he just said that, or the reason why I brought that up is because we have an implicit need to be justified. We know we need to be justified. Like the Jewish guy, like, well, I'm going to try harder. I'll try to be more kosher. I'll try to yeah. keep more of the laws. We want to be justified because we know that things aren't right if, you know, evil goes unpunished. And so then we justify ourselves in our head. Well, we've done most more, you know, we're a net positive. At least we think we are. <laughs> net positive. Um, but, the, and that's, I think, where he's moving more into this, maybe some of the more specifically unique things to Reformation, Reformational theology is the idea of understanding the holiness of God and the depravity of man and the incredible, impossible chasm between the two. Like, your best deeds in the world, you know, they're filthy rags. And mm-hmm. God, God sees them as filth. Yeah. I actually like the way Luther, uh, Martin Luther talked about uh, justification when he described it, um, us as being like a dung heap. And then <laughs> Christ's righteousness is like newly fallen snow, mm. making us white and yeah. clean and pretty. It's a pretty harsh analogy, but I think it's pretty spot on. The pilot poop. Yeah. Not good. Right. Mm-hmm. Hmm. One of the things, I, you know, as I think about the justification by faith alone, through grace alone, by Christ alone, um, it's very, it's very Protestant, I think, to, to look to this idea that works don't mean anything. Um, and even, I know Luther even had some issues with like the book of James, mm-hmm. um, or, or he had issues with the fact that oftentimes the, the papal teachers would only stay in books like James, where you know, he makes more of an emphasis on works than others do. Mm-hmm. But I think that we have some, some work to do as Protestants to understand, like, once you've been justified, and you, which I loved what R.C. was saying about how we're alive, we're a sinner, and yet we're justified at the same time. I, I thought I've never heard him. I've never heard that little Latin phrase, which I've already forgotten. But but the idea is is that you're you're justified and a sinner at the same time. Um, but you know, one of the things I think we have work to do is understanding the 
the, uh, the holiness of God in the midst of our justification. And the response to that is obedience to the good works that he set out for us to do. And that if our life isn't filled with good works, then that's where we need to be really looking at, you know, looking at our salvation, looking at our baptisms, looking at our working out our fear, our salvation with fear and trembling. Like those good deeds, you know, those things are so critical because that's what we've been commanded to do. But if that's the, if that's the justifier, the good deeds, then we've completely missed the point. We've missed what scripture, I think, clearly and abundantly describes. Yeah, those are the outpouring of the change. Yeah. Those don't incite the change. Yeah. yeah. All right. How are you guys looking for the next couple of weeks? Well, so as far as um, as far as like uh, figure it out when that birth's happening. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I think if there's not people that That's can't make it on Sunday, then we won't do anything on Sunday. Um, and then that next Sunday, I think Elizabeth's hoping that the baby will, <laughs> will be here. We'll so be here. Yeah. We're, we're technically due the 11th, but, but you know, she doesn't normally go early, so we might still be, we might not have had a baby time now. So, um, what is next, what's next Thursday looking for the rest of you guys? Because barring the baby coming, I'm, I think I'm free. Mm-hmm. I honestly don't know if I work that day or not, but even if I, even if I did... Well, now I'd be a little late, I guess. And it's always so hard with my occupation. You never know what's going to happen, mm-hmm. that you might end up leaving like an hour and a half late. So, um, kind of hard to... Yeah. I think, you know, I'm, I'm clear for the next two, at okay. least, and I've got them on the schedule. And, cool. you know, if we end up a couple short, we can always just... Yeah. Honestly, we've got to put the recording. Yeah. You know, that's Absolutely. great. That's great. Nice that you're, mm-hmm. you're doing that. Uh, so the sixth... Is, is a go for me and uh, the next one will be the 13th the 13th is a go for me um, the next Thursday is probably a no go for me so the thir- 20th um, yeah because I'll have some board meetings that night okay um, it's just to kind of lay out the rest of the you know the upcoming Weeks, I guess. And right. We can see where folks are at, but gets into the good stuff with total depravity and unconditional election coming up after we finish Faith Alone. So. Is that after Faith Alone? Yeah. Cool. I'm excited. No, he's doing a great job. This is this is really my first ex- extended exposure to RC's teaching. Mm-hmm. He's a he's a wonderful speaker. He's yeah. very concise. It's concise and very I'm always blown away by his knowledge of other writings like, yeah he just yeah like he quoted that past that little chunk that Luther said at the Diet of Worms and he just like the whole <laughs> spiel and it was like it's like a paragraph right. like, okay yeah a bunch of Latin yeah, like, yeah he's he's pretty probably, well probably a combination of just natural naturally gifted at it and just yeah. very well prepared yeah. you know he's obviously obviously very well prepared but. okay somebody like to lose us I will okay Lord thank you so much for your kindness to us we thank you Father that you have given us your scripture uh, and that we can trust it implicitly we can trust it from beginning all the way to the end 
Um, and we trust it, yes, blindly, but we also trust it not blindly because we know that we, we, we don't trust it blindly because we have the Holy Spirit to illuminate it for us. Whereas the natural man looks at Scripture and sees nothing but the foolishness of what he perceives or what he perceives to be the foolishness of God, Lord, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we can come before your word and it can be um, made living and active and cut us, um, dividing bone from marrow and uh, divided, cut us up into a sacrifice um, of offering and praise to you. And we thank you for scripture. We thank you um, for the justification uh, that Christ has accomplished on our behalf. And we thank you for the way in which uh, that comes uh, clear to us as we live our lives and we see our own sinfulness and yet we know that even though we're sinful that we've also we are saints we are justified in your eyes not by any possible thing we could have done but by the um, efficacious and um, effective work of Christ on the cross we thank you for these things and we thank you for um, these men that you've put uh, in the room tonight and we thank you for Lewis County and for Centralia and Chehalis and the surrounding uh, towns. We want to see Reformation come to this area, Lord. And we want to be your hands and feet as that comes about. And we ask, Father, that you would please uh, help um, us or cause us or send your spirit to um, store up our hearts so that a church might be born and thrive in this region. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.